Hello and welcome. I'm Ben Schultz. I'm Nora Schultz. And you're listening to Trying to Adapt, and today we're trying to adapt to Notre Dame de Paris, also known as The Hunchback of Notre Dame, uh, the novel by Victor Hugo. So for any of you who may have seen probably the Disney version, I've never seen the Disney version, so when I started reading the book, I didn't really know what actually happens in it. We start off, Victor Hugo wants to make it very clear to us what the date is. January 6th, 1482. We really should have recorded this on January 6th, but... It would be even cooler if we could have put it out on January 6th, but whatever. Yeah, sorry for the hiatus that was longer than we expected. Um, I've been getting over a hell of a cold. And I have been reading the book. Yeah, and also, like, finals for high schoolers and that sort of thing. But we're back now. Uh, happy 2019. Okay, so obviously this story takes place in Paris, as Victor Hugo would probably want you to call it. Um, fun fact before we get into this, you will probably know the story as The Hunchback of Notre Dame. This was not the title that Victor Hugo intended for his English readers at all, and he was actually kind of pissed off when he learned that that was what they changed the title to. Um, we're probably going to call it The Hunchback of Notre Dame more frequently than Notre Dame de Paris, just because it's, you know, a little bit more comfortable to say and understand for. Uh, and it's definitely more common in the English-speaking world to call it Hunchback. People are uh, going to recognize it by that name, and we're compiling, like, the list of adaptations that we're going to be looking at, and it seems like the vast majority of them are just called Hunchback of Notre Dame. Sometimes they're even just called The Hunchback. Yeah, so while Victor Hugo arguably intended his protagonist to be the cathedral itself, and therefore that's why he picked that title. It also leads for a bit of a double entendre because Notre Dame translates to Our Lady, so you could make the argument that Our Lady of Paris is also supposed to be Esmeralda. And that's a double entendre that of course doesn't carry over into English. So it makes sense as a title change. Hunchback of Notre Dame definitely sounds more like sensationalized and more interesting to an English reader. And we're going to get into some other interesting things about the title, because some adaptations are just called Esmeralda. They're putting the focus not even on Quasimodo, but on Esmeralda herself. Yeah, I think a lot of first-time readers of this book, may, even if you haven't seen the Disney movie, might be a little shocked to realize that Quasimodo was arguably not the protagonist. The protagonist is in the title. It's, it's the cathedral itself. It's Notre Dame. Yeah, I think Ben and I both agree on that. The cathedral itself is the protagonist and plays an active role in the narrative. Book one, chapter one. We're introduced to the world of Paris on January 6th, 1482. The fact that it's this specific date is important because there are two separate holidays that take place on January 6th. First is the Feast of the Epiphany, which celebrates something related to Jesus. I don't know. Uh, the other is the Feast of Fools, which is a non-religious holiday where people uh, get drunk, and we'll talk a little bit more in a minute about what exactly they do when they get drunk. Now, early on, we actually don't meet a lot of our principal characters um, until, like, the story kind of gets up and running. But right off the bat, we are introduced to Jeanne Frollo. Also known as 
Jehan Dumolin or Jehan de Molindino or Johannes. For whatever reason, he's like the one character that gets like a bunch of different names. Yeah, but basically, we're gonna call him Jehan Frollo. And he is a student. He is about 16 years old. So, good representation of 16-year-olds. Uh, as a 16-year-old, you know, we are an underrepresented class. Unfortunately, he's not a very good representation, though, because he is going to spend most of this story getting drunk, um, saying bad things about everybody, and mooching money off of his older brother, who we will meet rather dramatically later on. In order to get to the part where we're introduced to Jehan, uh, we have to get through not a long introduction, but a few pages where uh, Victor Hugo makes it clear what kind of book you're about to read, because he goes into depth about the building that this crowd of people is in, the Palace of Justice. He explains why it no longer exists in the Paris of 1830, and that's because it burnt down. He goes over, like, some of the details about what it looked like and the structure, the layout of where these people are standing. And you've got this whole crowd who's been waiting at the Palace of Justice uh, since very early in the morning because they're waiting for a, uh, a special event at noon, which kind of combines both the Epiphany and the Feast of Fools, and that is the mystery play. So yeah, right off the bat, you can see that Victor Hugo is setting off not just to tell a good story, but to sort of artistically analyze history, architecture, um, the forces that shape history and architecture. You know, he goes into detail about why, as Ben said, like why the Paris of the 1400s is different from the Paris of today. Or the Paris of 1830, not the Paris of today. The Paris of his today, to be exact. The plot starts to get rolling when uh, Pierre Grigoire, who is presumably a fairly young man, he is a playwright. He has written this mystery play that um, is about to be performed at the Palace of Justice. But there's a little bit of a problem because the play is supposed to start at noon, but they're also waiting for the Cardinal to show up, and the Cardinal is not really an important character but they're waiting for the cardinal to show up, and noon comes around, and then quarter past noon, half past noon comes around, and the cardinal is still not there. Pierre Gringoire is faced with a dilemma. Uh, should he start his play before the cardinal gets there and have and risk having the cardinal get mad at him or punish him in some way? Or should he wait to start the play and potentially get seriously injured by the crowd of people who is about to turn into a riot if this play doesn't start? Yeah, what's also pretty interesting about how Victor Hugo writes The Hunchback of Notre Dame is that he very frequently will weave, like, actual historical figures into the plot, uh, which gives his story, like, this feeling of legitimacy. And he also, like, he never... He always tells this story from the role of narrator as though he's recounting a historical chronicle. So that even though the reader obviously knows that all of this is fictional, it feels as though you're reading at times a actual historical. And see, that's kind of interesting because I think, you know, the reader might honestly come away with this thinking that everything in it actually did happen. Because I guess, I mean... 
there's implausible stuff, but there's nothing that is really impossible. And one thing that I think becomes absolutely crucial to think about when we look at adaptations of Hunchback, especially ones that, like, change the plot in significant ways, is that everything that happens in Hunchback is something that could have easily been forgotten by history. Even the most dramatic events that occur are not, like, they don't change Paris in any significant way. They might have been, like, headline news, so to speak, for a week or a couple weeks afterwards, because there are some dramatic events that happen, but nothing that, like, has any real effect on history. And I think Victor Hugo does that on purpose. And you were you were mentioning how uh, he interweaves real people who actually did exist in 1482 into the story, because Pierre Gringoire, our playwright here, uh, was actually a real person. I mean, there was a person of the same name who was a playwright. I have no idea if like the personality is in any way accurate. If it is, it's probably a coincidence. But yeah, there was a real playwright in late 15th century Paris named. Pierre Gringoire. He was, I think, not quite the right age to have been like a young man in 1482. I think he would have been kind of a child at this time, but... Yeah, I think it was mostly his name and profession that was borrowed, but it's still interesting to see how Victor Hugo clearly, like, did his research on 1480s Paris, and... The way that he, like, would pick and choose what elements of history to bring into his story to to give it this feeling of legitimacy. Well, we'll get into his intentions later. So, the goings-on at the Palace of Justice get fairly chaotic. The play isn't very good. Well, before the play even gets started, uh, Jehan basically, like, provokes this crowd of people into what could potentially turn into a riot because they have been standing on their feet for like six hours no entertainment of any kind has like been given to them yet basically this provokes Pierre Gringoire to start the play early before the cardinal actually arrives and that's when people start to realize that the play is actually not very good yeah so in the midst of this chaos and like, I'm going to kind of skip over the stuff with, like, Clopin, because it doesn't really... Yeah, so basically Clopin is a beggar who, in the middle of the play, hops up on the stage and starts asking people for donations. The gist of this whole scene is basically that, like, stuff, shit hits the fan. Pierre Grigoire is, he's very bad at crowd control. And then the Cardinal does arrive, and they have to interrupt the play, and then they try to start it again, and then every time they try to start it another important person walks in and they have to be announced and introduced in this very formal way and so that prevents them from actually getting anywhere but at some point eventually somebody points out you know that everybody is sick of this play and no one's paying attention and decides instead that they should move on to crowding the pope of fools this is where the feast of fools comes in yeah which basically means that people are going to put their head through a window and everybody is going to decide if they are ugly and like weird and foolish looking enough to be considered the Pope of Fools. So people are basically just making silly faces. And so this is like high medieval entertainment and everybody is having a bunch of fun with this until 
this random guy comes out of nowhere and is very clearly, like, not making a face. Like, this guy is just unfortunately disfigured. He has, like, this wart covering one of his eyes, um, his hair is super crazy, he has, like, one tooth that juts out. You guys know this is Quasimodo, I don't have to, like, Victor Hugo is going to introduce him in this dramatic way, but you guys know it's the Hunchback of Notre Dame. Victor Hugo introduces, like, every one of the important characters, like, ten different times. Like, he'll be like, oh, who is this misshapen, ugly man hanging out in the cathedral. It's Quasimodo. We know it's Quasimodo. Or this creepy priest is lurking around Paris following this poor gypsy girl. Like, yeah, we know this is Frollo and Esmeralda. This has been going on for several hundred pages already, Victor. That's just a Victor Hugo thing, honestly. He does that in Les Mis all the time, which we will get to at some point. Give it a couple years. Quasimodo is, like... A bit of a minor celebrity in Paris, because people clearly don't have much better to do with their time. So Quasimodo puts his face through this window, and everybody is somebody recognizes him as Quasimodo, the bell ringer of Notre Dame. Unfortunately for Quasimodo, he can't really hear what people are saying about him. Maybe that's fortunately, because most of it is not positive stuff. Um, and the reason why is because as bell ringer, he has gone deaf. I guess nobody thought to like put cotton in his ears or something because he's just been going at those bells all these years and he's deaf now this is something that you definitely see removed in a lot of adaptations because in the book it definitely has the effect of reducing the amount to which quasimodo can participate in being like an active character because he can't hear what anyone's saying he can't really speak to anyone so that kind of forces him to not really interact with anyone except for Claude Frollo. I will say that Victor Hugo seems to kind of pick and choose when he wants Quasimodo to be deaf. Like, it seems like there are some parts where, like, Quasimodo will be having, like, a conversation out loud with Esmeralda, and it seems like then, like, he can kind of hear most of what she's saying. And then there are other times where it seems like he isn't aware of what's going on at all for, like, plot purpose. So I can kind of understand why some adaptations would just kind of remove it all together since it seems to be fairly, like, you know, it depends on when Victor Hugo thinks it's important for the plot for Quasimodo to not be able to hear. It's poorly implemented, and there's a reason that uh, it doesn't really contribute very well to the story, and that for, for that reason it usually gets taken out. We've been mentioning Esmeralda. If you've seen any version of this story or even just kind of heard about it, you know who Esmeralda is, but she actually has not been introduced yet. She's about to be introduced now because as soon as Quasimodo sticks his face through the window, uh, everyone immediately decides that this is the ugliest man in Paris and he is the Pope of Fools. So they give him like his his crown and they start parading him around and they take him out into the street and that's when this crowd of people uh, suddenly discovers that Esmeralda has come out and she's performing. Esmeralda is a young, also about 16 years old, so, you know, more great representation here. Um, Pay attention to the fact that she's 16 years old, because it's going to be extremely disturbing at multiple points. Oh, yeah. This is another thing that adaptations change very frequently, because... Some of the things that happen to Esmeralda become, like, exponentially more fucked up when you realize that she's my age. But also the thing about Esmeralda that 
is crucial is that she is Romani. Um, now, well, she's not actually Romani. We'll get into that, but she is, as they refer to her, uh, both the characters and Victor Hugo, as a gypsy. Yeah. So we are going to use the slur to discuss what Victor Hugo has written and also what like adaptations choose to refer to her as. It, it would be basically impossible not to, but yes, just to acknowledge uh, Gypsy is usually a slur for Romani people. I think in this book, a lot of the people who are referred to as gypsies are not really like ethnically Romani. They're just people who have just kind of been pushed out of normal society by circumstance. Yeah, that's like, in a lot of adaptations, the kind of the dead of thieves kind of gets like transformed into this like ethnically Romani tribe that it isn't really in the book. Uh, but it's kind of unclear exactly who, like, you know, like how much of this group of like, Basically, like, homeless beggar people are Romani, and how many are just, like, outcasts from society for other reasons. But for the intents and purposes of the story, right now, Esmeralda is a gypsy. And she is well known throughout Paris at this time, because for the past couple months, every day she goes out into the square and begins to dance, and she's very beautiful, she's very attractive, and people just really enjoy watching her dance. Yeah, I mean, she's a talented performer, she's good at dancing, she sings beautifully. She also has a little goat, a little trained pet goat named Dajali. I think it's just pronounced Jolly. It's, it is just Jolly, but I, I have to say it that way, just for the first time to point out that it is a D-J-A-L-I. To our dumb American brains, it's Dajali, but... We're just going to say Jolly, because that's easier to pronounce, and it's also correct. Jolly, who is able to kind of, like, count, and kind of like the tricks that people will, like, have their dogs do, able to, like, count and say, like, what day of the month it is, and, like... Is that a, is that a thing that people do with their dogs? People definitely do that kind of thing, like, what's one plus two? Thump, thump, thump. Yeah, fair enough. So basically, like, Jolly knows, like, basic parlor tricks, but obviously, like, education is not, like, a, a big priority in a French medieval life, which Victor Hugo will, like, repeatedly comment on how barbaric but also similar the society of the 1400s was to the society of the 1800s, and obviously as the modern reader, there's a bit of an expectation for you as well to, like... Acknowledge what has changed, acknowledge what has unfortunately stayed the same, but it's the 1400s, so obviously people are like, maybe she's a witch. Well, I mean, combined with the fact that she's a gypsy, and she has this, like, goat which can do parlor tricks, like, people are pretty much certain that she's a witch, and that includes, like, the well-educated elite kind of people, too. Well, yeah, I mean, Pierre Grégoire, who has a decent amount of education, he's obviously not a rich guy, but he's had some fortunate occurrences, uh, which we'll get into as the story goes on. Even Pierre, like, is entertained, he's not really freaked out by Esmeralda, but he definitely, like, once he realizes that she's a gypsy, the enjoyment of her performance goes down considerably. You know, like, racism is a big part of the story, in case you didn't, like, catch on to that already. 
Yeah, now racism is a big theme in this story, but Victor Hugo doesn't focus on it nearly as much as many adaptations tend to do. Victor Hugo clearly, like, acknowledges that people in the 1400s were very racist and very ableist, but he doesn't really, like, there's no call to action. He doesn't really seem to necessarily morally condemn people for their racism and their sexism and their ableism. Yeah, and as, as you point out, there's not much of a focus on Quasimodo being mistreated because of his disability and his disfigurement either. Like, it's definitely there in the text. And a modern reader who has been influenced by movements of social justice and civil rights, it makes sense that a lot of modern adaptations really focus on this story as a story of social justice, because it's there in the text. Victor Hugo is clearly not, like, his concern doesn't lie with, like, the sort of injustice that is happening to many people in this story. He's a lot more concerned with another type of injustice, and we'll get to that. So, Pierre Gringoire follows the crowd to where Esmeralda is dancing. Wait a minute. Uh, Pierre Gringoire at first, like, gets super depressed that his play didn't turn out, even though it's, like, 7 p.m. He, like, tries to go, like, sleep on the street somewhere. Because he's, li- he's clearly living a great lifestyle. And then when he realizes it's a holiday and people are setting off fireworks and being super loud everywhere and there's nowhere that he's going to be able to just sleep in the street, he decides, whatever, fuck it, I'm going to go find out what this whole Esmeralda thing is about. Yeah, so he watches this girl dance, and at first he's also pretty entranced, and he realizes, like, oh wait, she's a gypsy, because, you know, among the people in the crowd who are watching Esmeralda is this, like, creepy, like, old-looking, but not actually old dude. And the fact that Victor Hugo spends so much time describing him may be a hit that he will be a principal character. Now, I thought you were going to mention first the fact that there is also a creepy, old-looking, but not really old woman in the crowd who has basically, for the past 16 years, barricaded herself in this little cell in the middle of the street because her child was stolen from her and she's never recovered from that grief. Basically, Esmeralda gets tag-teamed by these two, like, yelling stuff about how... She is, like, a witch and defying the Lord. Um, This kind of ruins, like, Esmeralda's whole gig. Basically, she heads off towards home, and home for her is the Court of Miracles, which is where the gypsies live. The gypsies, but also, like I said earlier, a lot of assorted, like, it's not entirely clear what all these people's backgrounds are. As, as we mentioned, there's not a clear distinction between, like, ethnically Romani people, whether or not that's what they are, and these other people who are just, like, criminals and pickpockets or whatever. But they all live in this community, and they're all basically considered gypsies. It's also important to point out here that a lot of adaptations, like, will focus on the people of the Court of Miracles and make their situation out to be as, you know, tragic as it is. Because we assume that these people wouldn't be engaging in these sort of crimes if they had, like, economic opportunities. But Victor Hugo doesn't really seem to be concerned with this. And he pretty much only describes these people in negative terms. Esmeralda is pretty much the only the only person here, the only gypsy that, like, 
Victor Hugo is clearly intending for us to feel sympathy for. Yeah, Victor Hugo's basically like, well, she's one of the good ones. That's kind of fucked up for a reason that, again, we will get to towards the end. Yeah, there's a reason why um, Esmeralda's background tends to get changed in a lot of adaptations, because it definitely borders on, like, just straight-up racism on the part of Victor Hugo, if you really, like, consider... Well, we'll get into it. So, Esmeralda runs off, but so does Pierre, and he, while the crowd is kind of going crazy um, at... You know, this crazy old woman yelling at her and this crazy old-ish guy yelling about sacrilege. Pierre Gringoire walks off and is again thinking about how, you know, he has no money, he has no bed, he has no food. But then he runs into the people who are still celebrating Quasimodo as the Pope of Fools. Quasimodo is like... He seems to be enjoying himself. It's not really clear. He's obviously not saying anything. This is one of the few exciting things that's ever happened to him. He doesn't really quite get that people are making fun of him, it seems. Like, he's not, like, you know, obviously very trustful of people. But he also, because he can't hear what they're saying, you know, like, he gets dressed up in this fancy cloak and he's given, like, this crown and this scepter. So Quasimodo's having a pretty good time right now. All of a sudden... Pierre notices that the old-ish guy who was yelling at Esmeralda about sacrilege, like, suddenly goes up to Quasimodo, scolds him, basically, like, talks to him in this weird sort of, like, sign language that only they understand. And everybody's like, oh my god, because Quasimodo, in addition to being very disabled, is a big, strong guy, like... He is not someone that people really want to mess around with. So the fact that this, like, this weird old man can just kind of walk up to him and, like, force his will on this guy, everyone is, like, pretty awestruck. Once Pierre gets a good look at this guy, he realizes, wait a second, that's Dom Claude Frollo, the Archdeacon of Josas. I will point out right now, he is not the Archdeacon of Notre Dame, because that is not a title that exists. Now, I realize that now that I have actually read the entire book, you probably don't know more about this than I do. But I just have to ask, because, like, Josas is a village on the outskirts of Paris. So why exactly, if he's the Archdeacon of this particular place... Why exactly does he live in Notre Dame and spend all of his time in the Notre Dame Cathedral, and it doesn't seem like he ever actually goes to Josas or do anything there? I think the role of deacons is a little bit more like... Claude Frollo would most likely not be giving sermons or, like, actually interacting with... Like, he mostly oversees what, like, the clergy of Josas would be doing, I guess, and presumably they would report back to Notre Dame, because he's not really a priest. Victor Hugo refers to him as a priest, but that's not quite, like, he is a clergyman, and presumably he could perform most of the duties of priest if needed, but that's not actually his job. Yeah, I don't know. I kind of assumed that it was maybe just kind of an honorary title, like how Prince Charles is the Prince of Wales, even though he doesn't, like, do anything in particular for Wales. Well, yeah, I mean, like, 
Josas is a pretty small area, and it's mostly, like, a place for nobility, right? Like, at this time? I don't think it's actually described in the book. This is just something that I looked up. Not in the book, but I, I've i looked it up too, though, and I think that was mostly, like, a seat for nobility had some land there. All right, we're getting off track. Yes, this guy is the archdeacon. He's He's an archdeacon. That's really... That's the relevant part. He's an important member of the clergy, and he, for whatever reason, he's able to control Quasimodo. Yeah, Quasimodo is pretty clearly scared shitless by this guy. So as soon as he starts, like, presumably yelling at him in sign language, they leave together. And that kind of ruins the fun of the crowd. So Claude Frollo has managed to ruin, like, the fun of this crowd twice now. And this will not be the only time that Claude Frollo is out ruining people's fun. And if it were just some random guy, they probably would beat the shit out of him because this is a very unruly crowd. But, you know, he's shown this, like, bizarre ability. Well, yeah, people don't want to fuck with Quasimodo because he is ripped, to say the least. I mean, like, his entire job is, like, pulling on a very heavy rope. In a minute, we'll get into how exactly Frollo is able to do this with Quasimodo. Uh, but just for the time being, uh, Gringoire kind of, you know, breaks off. This crowd kind of disperses, and he ends up just following Esmeralda again. Because even though he is racist, you know, I mean, as much as, like, everybody in this story is, you know, he's still kind of got the hots for Esmeralda. She's a good-looking girl Um it's unclear exactly how old Pierre is. I kind of assumed he was in his mid-twenties, but this is one of the least creepy things that happens to Esmeralda in this whole story, so... Yeah, so he's just kind of following her around when all of a sudden, these two people show up in the darkness because there's no, there's no lights. These two people show up in the darkness and Gringoire watches as they try to just pick her up and kidnap her, and so he calls for, like, the night watchman the police, I guess, he discovers as they, like, go to arrest these people that one of them is Quasimodo and the other one uh, runs away, but it's obviously Claude Frollo. And Quasimodo also, like, kind of beats the shit out of him before, like, Pierre could do much about it, so he's, like, he's KO'd for the time being. But as Quasimodo is kind of beating the shit out of Pierre, a knight on horseback comes and picks Esmeralda up, takes her away from these awful men. Quasimodo is arrested. Esmeralda, you know, like, learns the identity of this man who has saved her, and he is Captain Phoebus. I mean, that's that's how they say it in the Disney movie. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's basically how you say it. In the French-Canadian musical, they call it more like Phoebus, which is probably more accurate. Well, that's French-Canadian. Who knows what the fuck those guys are doing? So this guy is Captain Phoebus de Chateaupeur. Yeah, uh, Ben's the one who's taken college-level French, so I'm gonna trust him with that. Yeah, and I got a C in it, so that'll tell you how helpful I am. Phoebus. We're gonna call him Phoebus. Phoebus is a pretty hot guy. Esmeralda is a pretty hot girl. You can guess where this is going. But for the time being, Esmeralda fakes him and runs off. Pierre Gringoire the most helpful man on the planet, um, wakes up in the middle of the street after getting over the fact that Quasimodo beat him senseless. 
And as he's waking up, he's realizing that it's very possible that that man that he saw with Quasimodo is in fact Claude Frollo. And the reader is like, of course it's fucking Claude Frollo. You know, we, we gotta love Victor Hugo and his, like, foreshadowing that isn't really foreshadowing. So anyway, Pierre Gringoire is lost in the middle of a neighborhood of Paris he's never been in before. So he just heads off in whatever direction he thinks seems like it might take him back to the heart of the city. And that ends up taking him directly into the Court of Miracles. We were talking about it earlier. It's this very secluded kind of area, specifically meant for the outcasts in society. And they don't really take kindly to the normal people entering in without permission. In the book, Victor Hugo just kind of makes them seem like a bunch of assholes who are just going to kill everyone who comes across them. But the more generous reader will figure like, well, their existence is very threatened by the law. As we'll see, the justice system of medieval Paris is pretty unfair. When they see this, like, obviously Pierre is poor, but... He's not beggar poor, and he's also not Romani. So they probably figure that this guy's gonna rat on them, which makes their actions a little bit more understandable. So anyway, they arrest him, and they basically tell him, either join our group, which, you know, you can never come back from once you've joined, uh, or we kill you. Obviously, Pierre Grégoire would rather become a thief than die. Uh, this is a pretty common theme of Pierre Grégoire making dumb decisions um, in order to save his own hide. But they kind of try to test him out as a thief by, like, making him pickpocket this dummy that has a bunch of little bells attached to it. Um, he's really bad at it. He just completely fails this test. And Clopin, who is the leader of the thieves, I guess... Yeah, you, th you thought he was just some random beggar, didn't you? Well, it turns out this guy's actually pretty important in the world of beggars and thieves. Which is a pretty limited world, but still, he's, he's their king, I guess. They're, they are so ready to hang Pierre Grégoire. But then Clopin's like, wait a second, we have this one rule where if one of the women who live here decides to marry you, then you can live, which... I'm pretty confident that this is not a thing anywhere. Not a good system. But so, anyway, they gather up all the women of the area and, like, ask them each one by one, do you want to marry this guy? No, not really. And it seems like he's right on the brink of being executed when all of a sudden, Esmeralda comes home. And she says, yes, I will marry this guy. So, Pierre Grégoire kind of thinks, like, oh... If Esmeralda wants to marry me, maybe this means that she is into me. But Esmeralda literally carries around a dagger with her because she, at least for the time being, doesn't take much shit. She is also a virgin and she is determined to stay that way because she has been told. Basically, she was found as a child and her fellow gypsies have basically told her, like, if you have sex with a man... You'll, you'll never find your parents. Which, like, again, like a really fucked up little story to tell of this child. So Esmeralda is totally set on keeping her virginity. Gringoire is totally set on just kind of pushing the boundaries a little bit. But as we'll find, Pierre Gringoire is possibly the least creepy man in this book. 
because at the end of the day, he really just wants to get through this life without... With as little difficulty as possible. So once he realizes that Esmeralda, like, is really not compromising on this, Pierre's like, well, at least I'm alive. He asks her, though, like, why did you marry me then? And Esmeralda's basically like, because I'm a good person, because I didn't want to see you get hanged. Yeah, so that brings us to the end of book two. Uh, And then book three starts off with just kind of like a lengthy discussion of what Notre Dame looked like in 1482 and what the rest of Paris looked like in 1482. And it's like, if you were standing on the roof of Notre Dame, here are some of the things that you would be able to see that don't exist anymore. He'll talk about this more a little later on. Uh, The message here is basically like, architecture is the great art of humankind. And through, you know, these old buildings you know, the ones that have survived over these hundreds of years, they tell basically the story of human history. He makes the argument basically that in times of, like, illiteracy, you know, before the printing press, that architecture was really the way for, like, like there's some quote that I really like about, like, the the poet of this age became an architect. People, if they wanted to become immortalized in their art, the best way to do this at a time before books and before writing was to carve it into stone so that like these cathedrals in particular they may have been guided by a religious instinct but a lot of the like art and ornamentation was simply like creative expression of he makes the argument of an entire people because so many different craftsmen and workmen we're working on these massive monuments in the way that, like, you know, a modern, you know, this book was only written by one man. Architecture can truly more accurately tell the story of an entire people in a historical moment because of how much collaboration is involved. And so because of this, Victor Hugo introduces this main theme in this book that architecture should be preserved That renovations should be made with, like, you know, historical intent. Notre Dame Cathedral of 1830s Paris was quite run down. Basically, ever since the monarchy collapsed, the the successive governments that took over and revolutions one after the other uh, not only inflicted some damage because of all the fighting in the street, But also, no one was really, like, paying attention to protecting and preserving this structure, so it was run down. Yeah, and, like, people didn't really have the sense of historical preservation that we have nowadays. There wasn't really, like, any, you know, portion of the government, really anywhere, that was set up for making sure that historical monuments and places of cultural importance were protected. Arguably... Um, Notre Dame is in the state that it is today because Victor Hugo wrote this book and drew people's attention to this issue. Well, we'll get more into, like, intention and the results of this book later on. But this is the first of many sort of interludes where Victor Hugo is mostly talking from, like, an academic perspective and less about the story of the book. He's showing us basically this is the main purpose of what he's writing. He wants to protect Notre Dame. He sees it falling apart. He wants to restore it faithfully and accurately to its former glory. 
And he figures that the best way to get people to do this is to write a really enjoyable, interesting book about a time when Notre Dame was relatively new. So that so basically that brings us to the end of book three and up to book four. So basically this is super long because... It's a, lo- a lot happens in this book. It's not a super long book. It is 500 pages. There, There's a lot that happens. There's a lot to talk about. So... I've been Ben Schultz. I've been Nora Schultz. And you have been listening to Trying to Adapt. Thank you. 